Hello everyone and welcome to the Unanswered Questions True Crime Podcast. I have spent hours and hours investigating this. He basically told her that people have been killed. Journalists, independent investigators, people like that disappeared. It frightened her to the bone. There's more to the story than meets the eye. There were rumors of torture and homicide and sexual abuse, all sorts of egregious, horrendous crimes. He was polygraphed three times. Each of those three showed evasions. His resumes were a skeleton of truth. He was mad at the world, particularly mad at the government. The study that he commissioned that described a fictional terrorist attack. If people have died over this, it means you're getting close to the truth. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to say, what the fuck? Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we'll endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy and as always leave me some feedback on what you think about the show and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about Thomas Silverstein. Now, Thomas Edward Silverstein, born Thomas Edward Conway on February 4th of 1952, and who died on May 11th of 2019, was an American criminal who spent the last 42 years of his life in prison after being convicted of four separate murders while in prison for armed robbery, one of which was overturned. Silverstein spent the last 36 years of his life in solitary confinement for killing corrections officer Mill Cullarts at the Marion Penitentiary in Illinois. Prison authorities described him as a brutal killer and a former leader of the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. Silverstein maintained that the dehumanizing condition inside the prison system contributed to the three murders he committed. He was held in a specially designed cell in what is called Range 13 at ADX Florence Federal Penitentiary in Colorado, known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. He was the longest held prisoner in solitary confinement within the Bureau of Prisons, BOP, at the time of his death. Correctional officers refused to talk to Silverstein out of respect for Klutz. You turn to these two guys and just point your eye at us so they know something's coming. Do you have your knife in your hand? And what's their reaction? They just pack up like this. They hold their hands up? Yeah. I want to get out of here. Say, get out of here? Yeah. So they ran down the tube and then I ran out for Klutz. And he, at this point, he's away. Yeah. And well, he's seen me come. He loves you come. He sees me come. And what's he do? He freezes. He uh-huh. just he's just standing there looking at me, and I just go all the way off. I just you know uh, I just go all the way off. I just start stabbing. We're fighting. He's hitting me and stuff, and I just keep stabbing. And then he runs down the tier. Is he saying stop? Don't? Well, I'm not. I'm not hearing nothing. What do you mean when you're going off? You mean it's just, it's just, all I see is his hands moving and he's stabbing. It's just everything just goes blank. And the next thing I know, he's running down the tier. And I'm running behind him. And he, and he, he runs past the door and he slammed the door. Well, one of the guards picked up a club and hit me in the head. And, uh, so he tried to, one of the guards did try to help him. Well, later he ran down into the lockbox and got a club. Uh-huh. And then ran back, and he co-cocked me in the head when I was running after clutch. Uh-huh. Did you stab him? No, I just backed up. Uh-huh. I could have, I, I could have, but he was always all right with me. But then, I, after I was running after him and stuff, I was, you know, I was out of that, I wasn't, you know, hurt. You know, I just, it was like a big weight lifted off me. I just, you know, it was over. I didn't want to. I could have, you know, I could have done it, but you didn't. No, you calmed down. Yeah. And then what happened? 
police man at the door to the goose squad comes and he asks me for the knife. And so I tell him no, and they're all, you know, give us a knife. And I tell him no, no. You know, and I want some guarantee that ain't nothing that happened to me. And uh, so they got a lieutenant down there. So they don't come in, they don't say, okay, buddy, and they don't come in and deck you and floor you and everything else, they're still behind that. Yeah, and uh, so a guy, a lieutenant comes over and he tells me, you just give us a knife and just go to your cell and lock up and nothing will happen. So I give him the knife, I go to the cell. And, uh, okay, did you believe him or did you just figure, well, I don't have much choice here? Yeah. They're eventually going to get in anyway, so. Yeah. I mean, what were your feelings? That was about it. Plus, I like it. You know what? That's not me though. See, you know, I, I did what I, was, I did, and I didn't want no more. You know, I, I don't want to be told if you're going to tell me, yeah, I'm not going to sit there. Well, you know, I want you anyway. Come on in your coppers. You know, I can't stand it. And, be, and plus, I'm in no position to really argue. Yeah, I'm outnumbered. They can come in there and shoot me if they want to. You know, so. I just didn't, the way they do huffing and puffing, man, I seen the looks on her face. You know, I just knew I just better get some kind of reassurance. Uh -huh. You want to at least calm down to realize that they just can't come in and, and work you over or kill you. Mm -hmm. And what happens? And I go lock up. And what happens then? They come in and they get the knife? Well, I already give them knife. Okay. Then what happens then? Uh, then they take me into the office. They handcuff me and take me into the office. And then anybody beat you up at that point? No. Okay. Nobody touched me. I didn't get messed with it until later after they took me out. But uh, uh, they took me into the office and the FBI was there. And the FBI asked me what, what was happening. FBI had already been? Yeah. Well, this is sometime later. You know, after the, after I locked up, some time passed. And they okay, do you know at this point the guy's dead? No. Okay. They just took him out. What's going on with the other convicts? As far as what? You know, are they, do they see this? Are they yelling? Are they screaming? Are they talking to you? Are they just ignoring it? What? Do they know? Well, one guy was out on the range, but I don't think the rest of them, you can't really see because they, uh -huh. they got them, uh, what do you call them? Boss cars. We call them boss cars. They got a, a door in front where you can't really, you yeah. down a chair like you can with breakers. Yeah. I don't really remember. Okay. You're not thinking about that. <laughs> well, what are you thinking about? Um, I don't really, I wasn't thinking to think. Yeah. You know, I was just wondering, mainly I was wondering if it, when they were going to come in, you know, what was going to happen next. Sure. Are they going to come in here and beat me? What? You know, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because, you know, this, uh, this is another thing, too. You're out there in Oakingsville, all these guys are farmers and, and wherever, whatever they do, they all drink together and party together. And uh, they run it like that. You know, you mess with one, you gotta mess with all, and, they, and all that kind of stuff. So uh, you expect some kind of retaliation, I guess. Do, do you, I mean, does that surprise you? or? Do you have any feelings about it? Is that good, bad, whatever? I mean, does that surprise you that if mess with one, you got to take them all off? It kind of is kind of strange because you, 
you're not, when you're on the streets, you don't, you don't look at a law enforcement like that. You know, you, as a kid, you always look at, uh, some kids say, oh, I want to be a policeman, you know, and you think cops and, and officials like that are real upstanding, law-abiding type of people, and they run by the rules and regulations. You don't really expect them to be real clannish and real Gestapo uh, life. You expect them, if they're going to be cops, and they choose to play that game, they choose to be the good guys and live by the rules, and you expect them to live by those rules, right. and not cross over and live by someone else's rules. Right. They're not supposed to be the kind who, who steal your stuff, or mess with your paintings, or come down and beat you up. Yeah. Their rules say you don't do that. Well, not only that, not only that, but I can see, now, if I spit on you, and then you got something to spit on me for. Uh -huh. But just because I'm there and, and you got some kind of weird trip, I don't understand that. I don't understand. That's why I couldn't do that to them guys in hostages. I couldn't see myself just walking up there and just doing something to somebody just to do it. I wouldn't tear up your writings just to be doing it. Just like kids, some kids that pull wings off butterflies uh -huh. or burn cat's tails. Uh -huh. That was never my trip as a kid. Why do some kids choose to do that to animals and stuff? I don't know. And my perception of, of law enforcement is like law enforcement. And that's what they play on when they get, when it goes too far. And then they push people when they react like I did. And then they accuse us of being killers and maniacs. But they don't tell you what leads up to all that, what they do in the meantime. Then they jump behind the bed and say, oh, we're just doing our job. And we're just, uh, they don't tell you about how they called you all kinds of names and messed with you for three years and, and you know, had you all chained down and you know, sprayed mace in your face and, and hit you on your nuts and took clubs and beat you. Did that happen to you? Yeah, a lot of times. By clutch? Yeah, it shit you yeah. Tying you down? Well, not, not, Right then with him personally, but that's happened over the years of, of with different goon squads and stuff. You just it it this is what I'm trying to say to you in this thing right here. It's just not clutch. It's just not this one incident. This has been going on. For, this is why so many prisoners have empathy for me because they've been in these situations or seen it. They've been on the chair where this goon squad comes in and they act not in an organized manner. They'll tell you, oh, we, we have a specific way of grabbing them. And yeah, they do to get you down. But then ask them why they beat you after you're down or keep you chained in that bed for days in and days out. And that stuff works on your mind year after year. You see your buddies getting that treatment and you hear how they talk to you or pull you out and want to skin search you and tell you to spin on them, spread your asshole and stuff like that. No man's got pride on you as a prisoner or not. This stuff works on your mind where it's no more. They're not law, you don't look at them as law enforcement anymore, like you do is when you're a citizen, uh -huh. and you see them in a different law-abiding way. You see them for what, how they are, and you don't uh, treat them the same as you would. And how they are is, I mean, all of them aren't this way. No, no, no. If there was, was man, we'd really be in trouble. Uh -huh. I think that's why I told you I don't think that someone would put their neck out enough to kill somebody, even if they wanted to. Because some of them are decent enough to get back and not go for it. Uh -huh. You know, they might get in trouble. Uh -huh. 
but it gets it's not the same and it's hard to tell people that did the FBI listen to this? Did they listen to your explanation? Yeah. And what did they say? Nothing. I just told them, you know, they want to know if it was some kind of strike or, or a demonstration. Or, I told them, no, it's just a personal thing with me and him. Did, did they tell you he had died? No. How did you find that out? I think it was on the news or something. No one in the system told you? Yeah, when I was down in the hole, but it came later. Somebody from, you can call down in the hole, somebody else saw it on TV. And so a, a fellow convict called, yelled or told him that he died. Yeah. What did he say? Did he say, good job? Or did he say, hey, the guy died? Or what? Uh, well, nobody, I don't know anybody in their life clutch. Uh-huh. You know, I don't know. I don't know about staff, but... I don't think anybody likes a bully. If, they, if the staff said they liked him, it was just... Uh, I don't know, mixed feelings. I still got him. I still dream about him. You know, it's just, it's not a, it's, I don't know, I just wish it had never happened. I just wish he would have listened to me. You know, when I told Chris, you don't know who you mess with, man. I got forever in prison. And I'm not going to sit in this cage and let you have some day in and day out like this and threaten me. You know, you better get out of my case. And then antagonizing more. Oh, yeah. You ain't going to show me. I was like, just trying for our rah, 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 rah. I'll do whatever I feel like telling you. Yeah. Did you see it coming like a train coming? You just knew where it was going, but. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm, I'm still, you, you still think, man, these people are supposed to be law and order. You know, they're the ones that are supposed to, you know, be the good guys, supposedly. You know, why is he doing this? You know, what's his trick? I have mixed feelings about that, because he had all the aces in his, in his car. They could have done whatever they thought. Yeah. Well, yeah, what, what, what was the point? Why, why do this? And you think it related, it originally related back to the fact that, that this other guy, that he was angry about him and he transfers it over to you and his whole attitude. And, you know, he's just one of these guys who for some reason is going to get on your case. And he liked to, he liked to make that a point and show off to the other guards. Huh? It's years ago he killed Cadillac Smith and I could be tough with him. Yeah. You say you dream about it? What do you mean? Yeah. I've, I've dreamt about him for years. Just, I just see him in my dreams a lot of times. I see his wife a lot too. I feel real, real, real uh, bad for her. How? How do you know about his wife? Well, I seen her in court. She came in, in court here. What did she do? Did she look at you? Was she crying? Or? Yeah, and her and her daughter, I think it was. I think he's got a daughter or something. She was crying and stuff. And I was thinking, man, she looked like a real nice lady. And I'm thinking, man, you know, how could this creep be married to her? But I was thinking, you know, he's got family too. And it was weird sitting there watching her to go through that trip. But then, it, you know, it, it's real guilty because everybody just hears how 
me and Rod and I and him from doing that. And like he was just, he, they put him behind the badge again, like he was just doing his job keeping these dangerous prisoners, you know, in line. You know, and it wasn't like that at all, man. That guy got off on, on making people's lives miserable. miserable. And, and you're sitting there and you're listening to everybody talk bad about you and me and, and you're like you're scum on earth but you don't have any compassion for anybody, you're just a mad dog, killer. But what was you know, I don't I never tortured anybody. And you feel like he was. Oh, I'm sure he was. And the person who's tortured obviously is you. Yeah. Every day. And none of that ever came out. Did anybody ever believe your side of it? Nobody's, I, I told my story and see, and this is another thing about the law, I brought witnesses for the last three years to testify all these events because nothing really happened there that people never heard of because we're all right there together. Right. Witnesses other contacts? No, well, they said the only witnesses I could call was the people that was on the scene at the time. Okay. I said, well, if you just looked at it at the scene at the time, I look like a maniac. Like me and you argue, and all of a sudden you call me a name, and I just punch you out. Yeah. I just look like a hothead. But if I can't show what you did to me for three solid years, where it just just built and built and built and built, you know. And, and, and then what they come to you at that point and say, "Well, we're all of you peanuts. Why don't you report yeah. this? Yeah. Where's your case?" Yeah. And you said, "It's a waste of time." If I fight, I'm gonna get it once. I'm not gonna get it from Clutch. I'm gonna get it from the rest of them. When you see him in your dreams, he just appears, or the... I relive the whole thing. The whole, the whole thing goes over and over. The, the stabbing, yeah. you see him, yeah. and you see his wife. Yeah. What? Uh, I mean, that's not, obviously that's not something you want to dream about particularly, is it? It's just something that happens? The value that's still on your mind? Very much so. Do you feel sorry about that? In what way? I'm not sure. Do you feel sorry? Like, or do you regret killing him? Because uh, I guess you'd have to explain why. I mean, let's put it this way if I had it all over to do again, I wouldn't do it. You wouldn't kill him? No. What would you do differently? I don't know. I don't know. I think I would. I think he was just selling me wolf tickets, but he didn't know that. He, you know, I was taking him for serious. Somebody tells me, as, as many fools as I ran into over the years, and as many killings as I've seen, when somebody tells you they're going to kill you, man, you can't sit back and just. Oh, it ain't nothing. Yeah. No, that's. You know, I mean, somebody that goes that far. And especially when you're telling me you don't want no trouble, man, get off my case. I mean, I'm pleading with that guy. Maybe that's why he thought, well, you know, he can do what he wants to me. Or maybe I'm not what he thought I was. Maybe he expected me to hurt, you know, and then he might have backed off or something. I don't know what his trip was. But he tried to do you feel like he deserved to die, though, for what he was doing to you? Well, yeah, the, I'm not, well, I'm mad at myself because I went off, you know, that's why I'm telling you on this, when he says, how do you maintain, I, I lost it. I wasn't maintained, I got swept up in that whole, that whole thing, and I don't think I'm maintaining when 
you know, that kind of stuff affects me at that point. And if it wasn't that serious, this is what bothers me about these people afterwards in BOP. If it's not as serious as I say it is, then why did I kill him? Now that's a serious incident. That honest, somebody ought to come in and say, what happened to push you that far to kill this guy? Especially when they know me. You know, I've been in prison 14 years. Why all of a sudden I get to marry the last couple of years, I get in all this trouble. What possible reason would you have for killing him? I mean, that, that's what that's what I'm, that's what you're saying. You, if you just wanted to kill a guy, you had two of them when you slipped out of handcuffs, right run all the way down the tier block and get him. Yeah. I don't know. What did they say? Haven't anybody ever said anything to you? So it's just a matter of, uh, do, do, do people acknowledge you had a beef with him? But they just say it's just you, it's all your fault still. He's behind the badge. Plus the trip was fun. I, I wasn't there and I don't know what happened with that. But his, his cases happening that night makes it all the worse. What I heard was that what it was explained to me was, hey, you had these two guys, they're having a contest. And uh, when uh, uh, the, you had a beef with this guy, when you killed him, top wanted to get as many kills as you had, so he killed this other guy. That doesn't, John's not, he's not. I can't really speak for Tom, but he's not that tight, man. I'm telling you that Marion, Look at that, can you, did you see them guys in their uniforms going down through them by themselves, that gun squad and stuff? Uh, you just can't do that to people year after year after year, day after day after day, and have one of that kind of pressure and not expect something to explode. And at that time, I guess at that moment, that's when just, if they didn't lock it down or whatever, there would be a lot more in that kind. That's why they're so scared now to open that joint up. Did you think that they were used your case as an excuse just to lock the place down? Were they looking for a reason to lock it down? Or not? Well, it actually, it's been locked down since about 80. Uh, and know, what you're saying right now is, is uh, them, them units, they used to go out to the yard one before the lockdown, or what they call a lockdown. It was pretty much locked down anyway. When that factory, because you mentioned this stuff and hear about the strike and stuff, uh, all right, the whole joint's been locked down like that for a long time. And you can't lock people down like that and not expect, people can't even, people that love each other can't even live together, wives and husbands can't even live together on a vacation. They can't even go out on a vacation without fighting. You lock them up and you lock strangers up, different races, different religions. In, in the same environment for year after year after year, and I expect people to blow up. Right. That's insane. It's not because they're they're bad people. You just put so much pressure on these bars, man. They're, we're we're human beings, and people that wives kill their husbands, and they, they love to marry. They make love and stuff, and they go off on their husbands for being uh, abusive and stuff, and they expect us to sit back and twirl our thumbs. I've heard friends, good friends, they got to be laughing too much on Johnny Carson. Be laughing at Johnny Carson, got to tell him, hey, why don't you hold the noise down? 
this guy. He's a cousin of France. They're laughing, joking with him. A few hours earlier, I want to shut up. And then, boom, next thing you know, they're trying to kill each other. You know, it just gets so crazy. You, you, you no longer think about rational type of thoughts. You're just so full of hate. You, you hate the bars. You hate. You can't go outside. You, you know, you get, and if somebody messes with you, you can't say, "Oh, I'm gonna go out and get a drink," or "I'm gonna go play with my kids," or "I'm gonna go take the dog." You can't do none of that for release. They just want to keep locking you down. Like that's gonna stop the trouble. Or you just make it worse. And that's what I've been learning. What's the worst part? Uh, what's the worst part then? Not now, but what was the worst part when you were married then? Just that total control, somebody has total control of your life? Or what bugged you the most about prison? That clutch? Clutch? <laughs> he just became all fixation with you when you woke up in the morning? From the time I hear his voice or see him on a chair, I'd be up pacing. And he, he, my whole day would be ruined because I know a day wouldn't pass. If I got myself shut down or he would do something, cut my rep short, uh, mess with my pictures, my mail, he used to switch my letters. I'd send out mail and he'd put, switch my letters on me. What do you mean? Uh, he'd open them and send the letter to Sue, to, to Pam, and Pam to Sue. Yeah. Yeah. How do you he'd come back, what he'd come back and laugh at? Laugh at me. He'd take that? Yeah. And I got, I got, uh, well, I had him there, there in, in uh, Atlanta from affidavits from people that's got other people's mounted to try to show that, uh -huh. to show that they did receive different, you know. Did he have a thing, I mean, didn't he ever get rotated out of there? The other one every day? No, that's one of the things, they're supposed to rotate every three months. But in his case, he was the number one uh, uh, guard dog there. Yeah almost three or four years. Did that, see, that was another thing, too. He was the number one. They didn't have lieutenants like they do now in different units. He was the main team going. They had unit manager and all that stuff, but he ran the cell block. And all the complaints and stuff went to him, through him. So if I wrote him up, they'd go through him. He wrote him up, he had to see it, and that would even be worse. Did he have, obviously, did he treat anybody else this way, or just you? Yeah, John, and a few other guys. But me and John now? He's back in Marion. That's I heard John Gresham. Uh -huh. He was going to be one of my witnesses, the one that come to my trial, to explain how this came about. What was it about Clutch besides him? I mean, what was it about him that you disliked besides the fact that he was picking on you, or was that it? That was it. I didn't have anything. I didn't even know the guy. But when you talked to him, I mean, it, it, it turned into a real hatred, obviously. I mean, what kind of conversations did you have every day, or what, what was it like day after day with him coming in there? You said you got up in the morning and started pacing the floor because you knew something was going to happen. Was it, uh, was it the kind of thing you could just say, hey, man, look, <laughs> you know, you don't like me, I don't like you, this is crazy, let's just back off. I told him that time and time, and I told him, it got past that, and I told him, Clutch, listen, I got for everybody here. I got life in prison. You know, I'm not a punk, a little guy that you can smack around all the time. Don't, you better get off my case, Clutch. You got something coming, keep messing with me. And he just, they're just, that fuel flame, he just wouldn't listen. 
And you, you realize after what, Cadillac Smith's death, that you were going to have life? But you still find like it now? No, from the time I went to Marion, I, I had a life. But you still thought life's life, life is what, 30 years, 30, 30 years, 10 years? You still think you get out, right? Yeah, when you're looking at life in 10 years to the board, man, that's a long time. Now we get into Tommy's early life. Silverstein was born in Long Beach, California to Virginia Conway. Conway had divorced her first husband in 1952 while pregnant with Silverstein and married Thomas Conway, whom Silverstein claimed was his biological father four years later. Virginia divorced Conway and married Sid Silverstein, who'd legally adopted her son. Silverstein was timid, awkward, and shy, and frequently bullied as a child in the middle-class neighborhood where the family lived, in part because his peers mistakenly believed he was Jewish. Virginia Silverstein demanded that her son fight back, telling the boy that if he ever came home again crying because he'd been beaten up by a bully, she would be waiting to give him another beating. Silverstein stated, quote, That's how my mum was. She stood her mud. Someone came at you with a bat. You got your bat, and you both went at it. End quote. Spotting a bully named Gary walking home from school, Silverstein's mother dragged him to her backyard and forced her son to beat him. Quote, I took one look at my mum and her black belt and I took one look at Gary and there wasn't any choice at all. End quote. Recorded, recalled Silverstein. Quote, I smacked him in the face as hard as I could. End quote. His mother Conway had unwittingly unleashed a cycle of violence that would never cease as Gary's father spotted Silverstein the next day and dragged him into his house for Gary to respond in kind. Enraged, Conway drove over there and threw bricks through the window, teaching her son that two wrongs made a right. At age 14, Silverstein stole a car and assaulted a cop. Silverstein was sentenced to a California Youth Authority reformatory where he said his attitudes about violence were reinforced. Quote, anyone not willing to fight was abused. End quote. He recalled learning nothing but violently standing his ground. Quote, I hated authority. I hated authority, just like I hated bullies, he said. End quote. Upon release, Silverstein began using heroin. Committing armed robberies to finance his habits, Silverstein was arrested alongside his cousin and Thomas Conway in 1971. The 19-year-old was sent to San Quentin Prison only to be re-arrested while on parole in 1975 for two more armed robberies that yielded $11,000. He was sentenced to 15 years at the U.S. Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas in 1977. Peter Early, author of The Hot House, Life Inside Leavenworth, said the state's response to Silverstein's deeds would directly spoil the proliferation of supermax prisons and the practice of solitary confinement. Quote, Silverstein's actions were responsible for the ushering in a new era in modern-day corrections. End quote, he wrote. In 1971, at age 19, Silverstein was sent to San Quentin Prison in California for armed robbery. Four years later, he was paroled, but he was arrested soon after along with his father Thomas Conway and his cousin Gerald Hoff for three armed robberies. Their take was less than $11,000, or $53,000 when adjusted for inflation in 2022. In 1977, Silverstein was sentenced to 15 years for armed robbery to be served at United States Penitentiary in Leavenworth, Kansas. Now we get into the murders at USP Marion. While at Leavenworth, Silverstein developed ties with the Aryan Brotherhood. In 1980, Silverstein was convicted of the murder of inmate Danny Atwell, who reportedly refused to serve as a mule for heroin being moved through the prison. He was sentenced to life and transferred to the United States Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, USP Marion, which was then a high-security facility. The conviction was overturned in 1985, after it emerged that the jailhouse informants who testified at his trial had perjured themselves on the stand. At Mar 
Marion Silverstein was housed in the control unit, a virtual solitary confinement regime reserved for extreme management problems, or in other words, prisoners prone to assaultive and disruptive behaviour in the prison. Thomas Silverstein spent his time in solitary confinement with a constant ceiling light, ensuring uninterrupted camera surveillance. He was allowed only two phone calls per month and received his meals through a slot. In 1981, Silverstein was accused of the murder of Robert Chappell, a member of the DC Black's prison gang. Silverstein and another inmate, Clayton Fountain, were convicted and Silverstein received an additional life sentence. He avoided a possible death sentence since capital punishment on the federal level had not been reinstated yet. Silverstein maintained his innocence, and while Silverstein was on trial for Chappell's murder, the Bureau of Prisons transferred Raymond Lee Cadillac Smith, the national leader of the DC Black's prison gang, from another prison into the control unit in Marion. From the moment Smith arrived in the control unit, prison records showed that Smith made several attempts to murder Silverstein, yet prison officials kept the two men in cells close to each other. Quote, I tried to tell Cadillac that I didn't kill Chapel, but he didn't believe me and he bragged that he was going to kill me, Silverstein recalled. Everyone knew what was going on and no one did anything to keep us apart. The guards wanted one of us to kill the other. End quote. Silverstein and another inmate, Clay Fountain, broke out of an exercise area and caught Smith as he was leaving the shower area. They stabbed him 67 times and then dragged his body up and down the prison tier so that other prisoners still locked in their cells could see the bloody corpse. Now we get to the infamous murder of Corrections Officer Klutz. Officer Merle Eugene Klutz was assigned to help bring order to the cell block where Silverstein and Fountain were housed. On October 22nd of 1983, Silverstein killed Correction Officer Merle Klutz at USP Marion. After being let out of his cell for a shower, Silverstein used a ruse to get Klutz to walk ahead of him and positioned himself between Klutz and other officers. He stopped outside the cell of an inmate, Randy Gomitz. Gomitz passed a homemade prison knife to Silverstein and unlocked Silverstein's handcuffs with a homemade key. Silverstein then attacked Klutz, stabbing him multiple times. An autopsy later showed that Klutz had been stabbed 40 times. Now, Silverstein later claimed that he murdered Klutz in retaliation for Klutz's deliberately harassing him. Among other things, Klutz was accused of destroying paintings by Silverstein. BOP, Brew of Prisons, confiscates artwork when it depicts murder. Silverstein claims Klutz immediately began harassing him, but an investigation by the Federal Bureau of Prisons and FBI would later clear Klutz of any wrongdoing. In response to this, Silverstein would claim those two probes were whitewashers. A few hours later, Clayton Fountain, also an Aryan Brotherhood member, used the same strategy to kill Correctional Officer Robert Hoffman. USP Marion was subsequently placed on an indefinite lockdown, which ultimately lasted for 23 years. Following the murder of Klutz, Silverstein was transferred to the United States Penitentiary Atlanta, where he was placed in solitary confinement. His security status was recorded as no human contact. The events surrounding the murders of Correctional Officers Klutz and Hoffman inspired the design of the Federal Supermax Prison, the United States Penitentiary Florence Administrative Maximum Facility, USP Florence Admax in Colorado, which opened in 1994 and was built to house the most dangerous inmates in the federal prison system. Silverstein and Gomez were both held at ADX Florence. Fountain died in 2004 at the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. Now we get into who Clayton Fountain was. Clayton Anthony Fountain, born September 12th of 1955 and died on July 12th of 2004, was an American federal prisoner and member of the Aryan Brotherhood and convicted murderer. Now we get into the background of his story. 
Clayton was born on September 12th of 1955 at the U.S. Army Hospital in Fort Benning, Georgia. He was the oldest of six children, having one brother and four sisters, and was named after his father, Clayton Riley Fountain. The family moved every one and a half to two years. While his father served combat tours and career in Vietnam and his mother was working, Clayton, as the oldest in the family, became a surrogate for both parents when he was very young. He recalled maternal responsibilities for cooking, ironing, serving, cleaning, and caring for his young siblings. While serving in the Marines, he was convicted of murdering his staff sergeant in 1974 while stationed in the Philippines. He stole and disassembled a pistol from the ship's armory, brought it ashore, and used it to rob a Filipino guard of his shotgun. He then used the shotgun to murder his staff sergeant. No words were exchanged as Fountain shot him once in the chest, and after a brief walk, he took five hostages. Fountain had been written up recently by Staff Sergeant Rin for wearing PT gear on the mess deck in the mess hall. Fountain later had two years added to his sentence for aggravated assault and attempted escape. Fountain was sentenced to life imprisonment and was ultimately sent to the United States Penitentiary Marion, which at the time was the highest security prison in the United States. Fountain murdered three prisoners and one correctional officer with a shiv, which is a homemade prison knife, or a shank, while serving time at Marion and was labelled the most dangerous prisoner in the federal system. Fountain and another inmate, Hugh Collum, who was serving a 25-year sentence for armed bank robbery, were convicted of involuntary manslaughter and conveying a weapon in prison and had 15 years added to their sentences. Colum was released from prison in 2015. He died on June 21st, 2016, at the age of 62. On October 22nd of 1983, Fountain stabbed correctional officer Robert L. Hoffman to death, hours after Fountain's friend and fellow Aryan Brotherhood member Thomas Silverstein stabbed another correction officer, Mill Klutz, to death at the same facility. The incidents resulted in a 23-year lockdown at Marion and contributed to the creation of the federal supermax prison, United States Penitentiary Florence ADX. Fountain was moved to the United States Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. He was housed in a specially constructed confinement unit and was allowed contact only with authorized personnel. Fountain converted to Catholicism and completed several educational courses on theology during the 20 years he spent in virtual isolation. He remotely earned an associate's degree in business and a bachelor's degree in philosophy and business from Ohio University and earned a Catholic, and I'm going to butcher this name, catechetical diploma and began a Master of Arts in Religious Studies from Catholic Distance University. He developed ties with an order of Trappist monks and was accepted promiscuously as a lay brother after his death from a heart attack in 2004. The book A Different Kind of Cell, the story of a murderer who became a monk, is based on his life and religious conversion. The foreword was written by Sister Helen Prejean. Now we come back to Thomas Silverstein and the riot in Atlanta and his transfer back to Leavenworth. During the 1987 Atlanta prison riots, Cuban detainees at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary released Silverstein from his isolation cell. They handed Silverstein over to the Federal Bureau of Investigation's hostage rescue team one week later. Bureau of Prison officials were reportedly afraid that Silverstein would begin killing correctional officers being held by the Cubans. Before the Cubans released Silverstein to the Bureau of Prisons, the Cubans let Silverstein out of his isolation cell and Silverstein was able to roam freely about the prison. One of the prison guards being held hostage had a history of being kind to Silverstein. For example, when the guard would handcuff Silverstein, he would make it a point to ask Silverstein if his handcuffs were too tight. He was confronted by Silverstein and was ultimately spared by him. Bureau of Prisons and negotiators were able to convince the Cuban riot leaders to hand over Silverstein as a gesture of good faith, a relatively easy decision for them, given that Silverstein's status was peripheral to the aims of the Cuban leaders during the riot. The East Cell Block is also home to the prison system's most notorious inmate, Thomas Silverstein. A number of people in the Bureau of Prisons told me that he singularly was the toughest prisoner 
they believed that the Bureau of Prisons had ever housed or had in their custody. He was just an absolute uh, animal, and he hated everything to do with uh, the Bureau of Prisons or any of their staff. Silverstein was incarcerated in 1975 for a bank robbery. Years later, he was sentenced to multiple life terms for fatally stabbing an inmate and a prison guard. Thomas Silverstein was cold and he was a killer. He had two things on his mind to escape from jail because his crimes were such where he was going to die in jail. Uh, and then the other objective was to kill people. Uh, it was as simple as that. Prison employee Ted Manier is being held inside a room in the prison's chapel. So man came up to the window, and he wasn't a Cuban. And the guy beside me said, that's Silverstein. And he came inside, and he had a flashlight, and he started shining his flashlight. He shined the light on me and said, don't I know you? And I told him, no. He said, I don't, I've never seen you before. And he said, you don't know who I am? He looked worse than anything I've ever seen in any type of movie or anything. And when you look at him, you'd know he isn't a normal. <laughs> There's something, something strange about him. Uh, he's really scared. Detainees finally distract Silverstein and he leaves without harming the hostages. Still, Colson knows that Silverstein is as dangerous inside the prison as he is on the outside. He was a sociopath and he'd already he'd proven he would commit murder. So had he done that, had he attempted to, to harm a guard or, or anybody else in there, uh, it would have caused us to have to go in and launch a rescue we didn't want to have to launch. And again, we were faced with significant loss of life. Knowing Thomas Silverstein is such a dangerous wild card, FBI negotiator D. Rosario must convince the detainees to turn him over. United States, okay? I emphasized and kept re-emphasizing the fact that uh, Tommy Silverstein could become a very grave liability to the Cuban detainees and to their cause and to what they were trying to attain. I was told that uh, they would think about it. Rosario tells the rioters that until Silverstein is back behind bars, the hostages are in grave danger. As long as the vicious killer roams free, the standoff could come to a sudden and violent end. More than a week into the intense standoff with Cuban detainees at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, FBI negotiators worry that a dangerous American prisoner could jeopardize a peaceful end to the conflict. What I suggested to them was that at some point or another, it would be in your best interest to turn Tommy Silverstein over to us. Special Agent D. Rosario tries to convince the rioters that Silverstein is a serious threat to prison employees who are being held hostage. The American inmate is jeopardizing their position in the negotiations. A short time later, 
a large group of detainees appears at the sally port gate of the main cell block. And there was about 100 Cubans screaming, waving their sabers in the air. And I could see they had silver stain. of all these screaming Cubans, they threw, literally threw Silverstein at us. Detainees tell agents how they captured Silverstein. So they gained access to the pharmacy. They took some narcotic. They put it in a can of uh, fruit cocktail, which he was known to like, and fed him fruit cocktail laced liberally with this drug, which in effect knocked him out. The FBI viewed Silverstein's capture as an act of good faith. That told us a lot. They don't want to hurt the hostages. It showed the negotiators that these Cubans were responsible. They were willing to do things to cooperate with us in order to reach a common goal, which is a, a great step in any negotiation process. Silverstein was subsequently moved back to Leavenworth, where he stayed for the next 18 years. In 2005, when USP Leavenworth was downgraded to a medium security facility, Silverstein was moved to ADX Florence, a supermax facility in Colorado. His earliest theoretical date of release was November 2nd of 2095. Thomas Silverstein has been locked under the tightest conditions in Federal Bureau of Prisons, BOP, in total isolation since he murdered a correctional officer in 1983. Silverstein was placed in solitary confinement with a permanently turned on light in the ceiling that allowed for uninterrupted video surveillance. His meals were delivered through a slot while his monthly phone calls were limited to two. At first, the BOP stripped him to his boxer shorts and did not let him have anything in his cell. While security cameras were being installed, two guards sat outside his cell and watched him round the clock. He was kept under these conditions for six months. The BOP then began giving Silverstein additional privileges, such as a television set and drawing materials. Part of the reason was because the BOP realized that it is nearly impossible to control an inmate unless you have something to take away from him as punishment. Silverstein spent much of his day drawing, and he was entirely self-taught. The BOP refused to allow him to enter his work in prison-sponsored art shows at Leavenworth where convicts can sell their work to the public. It did not want Silverstein to profit from his notoriety. Now we come to the Silverstein Suite. The Silverstein Suite, built just for him, is located at the end of the Special Housing Unit, SHU, a special building isolated from the main prison. Silverstein was moved here in 1989 from his basement dungeon that is described in The Hot House. The SHU is a prison inside a prison and is commonly called The Hole. It's where convicts are sent for punishment. Silverstein is kept in his cell 23 hours per day. At certain times, an electronic door is open for one hour, so he can step into the outside reception area or into an indoor recreation cage. He is not allowed into the hallway that is used by officers when they need to microwave his meals or check on him face to face. There is a visiting room attached to the indoor recreation cage, but since the Bureau of Prisons doesn't allow visitors, it has not been used. These three rooms, his cell and two recreation cages, are his entire world. Because he is under constant surveillance, the only time that he sees other humans is when food is brought to his cell. He has been kept under no human contact conditions since 1983. 
Now we get into his allegations of torture and injustice. Silverstein claims that the no human contact status is essentially a form of torture reserved for those who kill correctional officers. Quote, when an inmate kills a guard, he must be punished. A brew of prisons official told author Pete Early. We can't execute Silverstein, so we have no choice but to make his life a living hell. Otherwise, other inmates will kill guards too. There has to be some supreme punishment. Every convict knows what Silverstein is going through. We want them to realize that if they cross the same line that he did, they will pay a heavy price. End quote. Ted Sellers, a former convict who met Silverstein during 25 years spent in prison, said he became a legend at Leavenworth. Sellers told BBC News Online, quote, He's not as bad as they betray. Sure, he is dangerous if they push him to the wall, but there were some dirty rotten guards at Marion. They would purposely screw you around. You are dealing with a person locked up 23 hours a day. Of course he's got a short fuse. End quote. Now we get into Silverstein's death. Silverstein died on May 11th of 2019, aged 67, at St. Anthony Hospital in Lakewood, Colorado, after spending 36 years in solitary confinement. He died due to complications from heart surgery. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions, it still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I've covered. You can follow me on all major social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to have a look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time, next on Unanswered Questions. The death of Michael Nick and Brett Kent. Tour. Now, Michael Nigg, born April 28th of 1969 and died September 8th of 1995, was an aspiring actor who worked as a waiter at a Beverly Hills restaurant. He was shot and killed during an apparent robbery attempt in Hollywood. 